and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Kova. I'm Kikita Kaori, and we have a special guest today. Hi, Marie. <laughs> Hi, it's good to be back here. Yep, we wanted to introduce Marie Brennan, who is a uh, writer for Legend of the Five Rings, and she is uh, coming on to talk to us about her new novel, Night Parade of a Hundred Demons, which is coming out from Aconite Press, uh, February 2nd, 2021, right? Yep, not very far from now at all. So for those that we've had you on before, but for... Mm -hmm. uh, for any of our listeners who haven't heard our previous interview with you, can you give us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with Legend of the Five Rings? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a full-time fantasy author, uh, most well-known at the moment for uh, Memoirs of Lady Trench, which are kind of an alternate Victorian series about a woman who wants to study dragons as a field biologist and keeps getting into all kinds of trouble along the way. Uh, I'm also starting next year, or possibly by the time this airs this year, 2021, I'm going to be half of M.A. Carrick, the author of the Rook and Rose epic fantasy trilogy, which starts with The Mask of Mirrors, uh, two weeks before Night Parade comes out. So that's made my life a little exciting, trying to prep for two books at once here. Um, but I, I got involved in L5R because I am a gaming nerd, and a friend invited me to play in an L5R tabletop game, which... Like, I'd heard of it. I didn't know the game really at all before that point. And a little ways into me playing in that game, AEG, who owned the game at the time, basically had, uh, they called it a contest. It was sort of an open submissions call for players to send in, uh, uh, like, their own suggestions for chapters for Imperial Histories 2. So I pitched them a couple, one of which was the Tobashi Dynasty, and they accepted that one. And that's how I got into writing for the RPG for that edition of the game. And then when it transferred over to Fantasy Flight, I started writing the actual fictions for the story. And from the fictions to a novella, from the novella to a novel, and here we are. And here we are. So how is life treating you in a COVID-y sort of world? How, how are things, how are you going personally everything yeah i mean the the weirdest thing about this in some ways is how much it isn't actually that different for me because i've been writing full-time for like 12 years i work from home uh my husband was working from home more often than not just because of things to do with like the commute to his office so he would go in occasionally but not that often and until quite recently my sister who lives with us also worked from home so that aspect of it feels pretty much normal. Uh, the only, like, noticeable changes for me are that my karate classes are being done over Zoom, and our gaming either has to be over Zoom or else outside and six feet apart with masks on. Like, those are actually, that and not traveling for conventions are the only really substantive changes for me. So there's been this bizarre thing where, like, the world is totally different, and yet my life mostly isn't. I feel that very much, yeah. <laughs> But I, I do recognize, like, we're incredibly lucky that none of us have the kinds of jobs where we have to go out there every day and put ourselves at risk. Like, we've got a very a very sheltered experience of this in the grand scheme of things. So, moving on to more pleasant things, um, like village being invaded by demons, uh, tell us a little bit about Night Parade. Give us, like, the, you know, if you were, if you were pitching it to our audience, how would you go with that? I'm always... 
I'm terrible at the, the elevator pitch approach to things. Like, if you ask me to sum up a book in, like, three paragraphs, I can do that. But, like, three sentences is the hard part. Uh, but the, the short version is that there are strange supernatural disturbances happening in a rural mining village in the Dragon Mountains. And so a Dragon Shugenja is sent to investigate and discovers that a... Uh, Phoenix Scholar has also heard about what's going on and has wandered up there to take a look, which he really wishes that guy weren't there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the anybody who knows their Japanese folklore and such well uh, may recognize the phrase, Night Parade of a Hundred Demons. Uh, spoiler, that's what's causing the disturbances. Uh, so, you know, it's not meant to be a surprise <laughs> to the reader. I put it right here in the title. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, so there's uh, yokai, which is a kind of catch-all term for a bunch of supernatural sorts of creatures in Japanese folklore. Uh, a whole lot of stuff with different yokai uh, causing problems in the village. Very cool. So what is the minimum number of demons to constitute a parade? I think this is important information. Does it need the full 100 or can you, you know? I, I think the, the absolute minimum I would say is probably four. Because, like, the parade needs a yeah. leader, oh, okay. and then you got to have at least three people following you. Like, if it's two, that's that's not really a parade yet. I think you need at least a total of four, uh, which, now that I think of it, conveniently, that's um, the word for four is a homophone for death, and so it's a little bit of a kind of inauspicious number, which is appropriate for the Night Parade of 100 Demons. Uh, would you consider this an adventure story? Would you consider it a mystery or a romance or something else? Um... I mean, I wouldn't call it an adventure, probably in the sense that people think of that. This is not the kind of book where there's like a fight scene or an, you know chase or something like that every 50 pages. It is definitely a, a slower burn than that. It builds up to some exciting stuff at the end, but it is more of an investigation early on. I, I kind of think of the terms mystery and romance in two senses. One is what are the elements going into the story, and the other is mystery and romance as genres. So it's not a mystery in the genre sense, because like I said, I put the answer to the mystery in the title of the book. <laughs> this is not the kind of thing where if the reader pays attention to the clues along the way, they may piece it together. It's not that kind of mystery, though it is an investigation. The, the, the clue being the title. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I give you one clue. It's a remote village that don't even have a drawing room. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how can you get everybody together at the end to explain it all? Um, things actually wind up being explained like with somebody standing on top of a cart in the middle of the village. That's not quite Columbo there. <laughs> and romance-wise, I mean, my personal taste with romance is I find it more romantic when it is the B-plot to something else, because just my taste in, in what I attach to is I like it when the characters are working together on something important and their attachment to each other builds during the course of that, rather than it being the romance is the A-plot and the other thing is the B-plot. So in those like structural terms, it's not a genre romance, but there is definitely a romantic subplot. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that because like you pretty much would have had to, I think, disable your gaydar completely not to realize that the first time Ryotora lays eyes on second, he's like, okay, I'm kind of attracted there. <laughs> so that is a strain throughout. Uh, but I, I would say overall, the tone of it is more toward the investigative mystery end of things. Because even if the reader knows what's going on, there are reasons why the characters do not. And so they're trying to find out what's the cause of all of this. And then once they know that, the even more important question, what do we do about it? <laughs> that makes sense. So what is your favorite yokai? This 
I, I'm a little torn on this because on the one hand, I'm very profoundly a cat person. So I feel like I ought to say Bakineko, which is your like monster cat. But cats don't have a very good reputation in Japanese folklore. Uh, Bakineko are kind of evil. Uh, and if you start looking at other cat yokai, they just keep getting worse. Like Nekomata is worse than Bakineko, and then Kasha is even worse than Nekomata. <laughs> like, all right. <clears throat> so I think I, I might have to go for the ones that are just random is like especially in the context of something where there's a game there's kind of this tendency to say any supernatural creature like it needs to have stats it needs to have powers it needs to be something we could like make like a confrontation out of with the pcs but you get these yokai like mokumokuren is just something where if you don't take care of your shoji your rice paper screens and you let holes form in the paper then a mokumokuren will like move in and possess it and there will be eyeballs like blinking at you out of those holes and that's it. That's all it does. It blinks at you. And 4th edition L5R actually, like, made this attempt to stat up the Mokumokuren as some kind of Shadowlands creature that was, like, a danger to people. <laughs> I'm just like, no! All it does is blink at you! <laughs> or, uh, my sister finds it ridiculous that I have a much harder time remembering the Japanese word for floor than I do for ceiling. And the reason I know ceiling is because there's a yokai, which is the uh, Tenjo-name, and it literally just means ceiling liquor. And this yokai exists to explain why you, like, wind up with these stains on your ceiling. It's because the tenjo name has been licking your ceiling. There you go. That's it. It just licks the ceiling. That's all. Like, it's not a dark mantle. It's not going to drop on you and try to suffocate you. It licks your ceiling. I, I think my favorite is the animated umbrella. I actually have a spreadsheet I made of all of the different yokai from the books I was using as sources so that I could go through and go, all right, how could I use these in the plot? So I have that one in there. I don't think I worked it into the story, though. Well, it was in the background. It's one of the extras. Yeah, I think my favorite is the flaming wagon wheel one, though. Oh, um, that one I do mention. Um, Katawaraguruma? Um, I, I can't remember if it's that one. I, I think that might be the name of it. Yeah, there is a mention of that one. Uh, that definitely starts heading off in directions that, for L5R purposes, I would say, I could see that being more Jigoku, because uh, it's a flaming wagon wheel with, like, the, you know, screaming corpse of a, a naked woman who's being, like, tormented in hell riding it. So it, it's going off in some directions that sound a little more ominous. But I will say, I'm glad that Fantasy Flight has uh, undid a lot of what AEG did, where, like, the earlier versions of the game turned everything supernatural into something tainted. And I'm like, you you can't get a lot of the flavor of the source material if everything is tainted and connected to Jigoku. So I'm really glad that Fantasy Flight has changed that such that you've got much more of these other kinds of yokai, these other sorts of spiritual things that aren't all immediately evil. Now, of course, if if all your uh, yokai and your story were restricted to just licking the ceilings, then this probably would not be quite as uh, dramatic. No, there there are more dangerous ones. Yeah, well, look, the aforementioned uh, cat, worse cat, even worse cat, even worse yeah. than that cat. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and even the ones that are dangerous, sometimes they just, they sound a little bit random and weird when you're used to game-style monsters. Because, like, there's a giant severed head that will, like, land on people and crush them. And you're like, on the one hand, that is dangerous. On the other hand, it's kind of going boing, boing, boing around town. <laughs> there's also a foot that can descend, I think, from the ceiling or from the, the sky. And it's just the foot. It's so weird. But even some of the simpler ones, like I, some of the earliest stuff that gets mentioned in the novel is 
a number of things that are almost more in the direction of like poltergeist activity. So there's a reference to how a length of cloth that was going to be used to sew a piece of clothing suddenly animated and tried to strangle people. Like even the simple things can be dangerous. So how do you go about researching all of this? So there's a guy named Matthew Meyer who runs a website called yokai.com. Uh, and actually, as we're recording this, he's running a Kickstarter for his fourth collection. Uh, he's putting out these books about yokai, um, the first of which is called The Night Parade of 100 Demons. And uh, that was just invaluable. It's not the only book that I read on yokai or books. Uh, but when I said I made that spreadsheet, literally what I was doing was sitting down with his books and going through page by page saying, OK, yeah, I can use that one. Nope, that's not going to fit. Definitely use that. <laughs> Uh, and so that was my, my primary resource. I owe a huge amount to him. I also emailed him at one point with a question because I couldn't find, you know, I mentioned this is a mining village and I really wanted, if possible, to have some kind of yokai that would be doing something in the mines. So I emailed him and unfortunately, I, what I was thinking of is something along the lines of a knocker from Cornish folklore, which are very much a fairy that is associated with mines and with miners. But there doesn't seem to be anything like that in Japan. I, I asked him, and he couldn't think of anything. And he has a more encyclopedic knowledge of yokai than anybody I know of in the English language. So, um, did you draw from any European sources for inspiration, like, and or have any? Uh, well, um, our listener asked, you know, how do you approach cross-cultural mixing of ideas and languages? So. I mean, nothing in terms of specific story material uh, came from Europe. Now, obviously, I am an English language writer, American. Um, the kinds of stories I tell are definitely going to be more in the Western tradition of storytelling. Like, I'm not claiming that structurally this is a really Japanese or East Asian kind of story. Uh, and I'm writing for an English language market and so forth. So in that sense, there is going to be the European influence just because of the way that I tell stories. But I didn't do anything, like I mentioned knockers just a moment ago. When I couldn't find anything in Japanese lore that was equivalent to a knocker, I did not then make up something to be like a knocker that I could then use. Okay. Uh, so none of the, the supernatural stuff comes from that or anything like that. Uh, you know, one of the things that gets pointed to as a difference between Eastern and Western storytelling is, uh, you know, Eastern storytelling traditionally and... and um, stereotypically not in the, the negative sense, but it's more comfortable with the, the tragic and bittersweet endings. Uh, like, you know, we had enough tragedy in the world around us, I'm going to write an ending where people are happy, where things go well. Um, and not doing what I think L5R has done from time to time and really kind of like fetishizing the nobody ever gets to be happy kind of idea. Um, so that, I, I think in that sense that's coming through, that I'm like, no, the character's way to have their cake and eat it too. They get to do their duty and also be happy. That's fine. They're fine very, very occasionally if we if we must. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, so you're writing this for Aconite Press. Um, mm -hmm. How did you get from writing for Legend of Five Rings under FFG to end up with Aconite? How did that go about? Uh, they emailed me. Um, I, I don't know sort of how they assembled their list of people to approach, but I got an email from Lottie at Aconite uh, basically saying, hey, uh, we're starting up this line of L5R novels and would like to know if you are interested. Uh, to which I said, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> so that was kind of so putting together, it's like Nick Fury putting together. <laughs> oh, am I an Avenger now? <laughs> that sounds awesome. 
It's either that or Justice League, and I think I think we all know which one we'd rather be. I would rather yeah. be an Avenger, yeah. <laughs> Though I mean, the the Wonder Woman movie quite good. Uh, so is writing for Aconite different than writing for FFG? Yeah, I, I get to use a lot more words. <laughs> I mean, I say that uh, tongue in cheek, but um, pardon me, I'm going to sneeze or not. I hate it when that happens. Um, I. Uh, I, I have always been kind of a natural novelist. Like, I learned how to write short stories well after I had learned to write competent novels. It did not come to me naturally. And so even though most of what I've written for Fantasy Flight has been these uh, short fictions for the game, uh, which I, I've mentioned on the Discord and on the forum, but for anybody who's not aware, these stories were usually capped at 3,000 words or 4,000 if, like, you know, for the, the big events we might get to do 4,000 or for the very first stories we did. And short stories as a category for, like, awards goes up to 7,500, so we're definitely playing in the lower half of short story length. And that that doesn't leave a lot of room for any kind of elaboration on stuff. Uh, you've got to keep it very, very streamlined. So <clears throat> getting to write first The Eternal Knot, my novella, and then Night Parade, you know, having tens of thousands of words to play with. It's beautiful. <laughs> I have all this room. But there's also a little bit of, uh, you know, not just that I have more words, but that there are things which I get asked to develop in more detail, which wouldn't be asked for in the short fictions, just because there isn't room for them. And the one that struck me the most is, I, you know, I, I was told to try to keep the novel, or that I had to keep the novel between 80 and 86,000 words. So I, you know, aim for this target. Uh, and it doesn't sound like that's a narrow target, but for something that size and for somebody like me who doesn't usually outline in great detail, I'm like, okay, gotta hit a pretty precise bullseye there. Um, and I, I sent in something that was about like 85, like 85,000 and change. Uh, and so 86 is my cap here. Thinking I'll tighten stuff up a little bit and, you know, add in whatever bits the, the editor wants. And this is usually how it goes with the short fiction. I'll send in something that's like a few hundred words short so I have room to flesh out whatever they ask for. And it comes back, and the thing that surprised me was Lottie was basically like, I want so much more from the romance, like here and here and here and here and here. Please crank up the feelings and rip my heart out for me. Thank you. And there's not room for that kind of thing, like the, not just in the length of the stories, but also in the focus of the game narrative. You don't get a whole lot of the like relationship squishy feelings development for those characters. Uh, so it was you know, fun to go back through and say, oh, you know, also not just with length, but in terms of focus, you want me to play up the romance rather than keeping it more focused on the monsters and the things that are going wrong. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that also really came through. Well, I think it worked really well. Yeah, unfortunately, Lottie said, oh, and you can go up to 90,000, which was good because I had no idea how I was going to fit that additional <laughs> development in there and stay under 86,000 words. Yes. So I had basically like another entire short story's worth of room to play with and I used most 4, of 4,000 words, but it must all be love. All, all be love. <laughs> most of it, yeah. Like I, I think the vast majority of what I added in was focused on like playing up, you know, why these characters were interested each, in each other and then this is where the yeah. And then, you know, why can't they just go ahead and do that? What's holding them back? Because for a romance plot, you need those obstacles of why do the characters not just go, hey, want to kiss? Sure. All right. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, one, one of the, uh, this is not really a spoiler, but because it's an alternating viewpoint thing, seeing, yeah, you, know, you see one person and then you see them through the eyes of the other person and you completely get why stuff like that's happening. 
And I, yeah. I really like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's, I, I appear to have just a thing for doing dual protagonists because my first series, which, you know, the fact that it's the doppelganger duology kind of implies two going on right there. Uh, the Onyx Court series, uh, generally there's like two protagonists and maybe a, a couple of other minor points of view. Uh, the Wilder series, I've got two protagonists. I appear to just do that a lot, and I don't know why. But you're right that it is fun to be able to say, okay, let me play with the tension between what this person knows and what that person knows and where they don't match up. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I really like about the book. So good stuff. I'm good. Though I will say, um, if doing something like what I did there of a strict alternation of like first chapter is Girototo's point of view, second chapter is seconds, and so on and so forth, there's a part of me that partway through doing that went well, rigid structure, great. So <laughs> there is one chapter which is, if you pay attention to the page count, you will notice it is markedly longer than the others because just in terms of where things went, I'm like, I can't just say, okay, now we have a second Yotona chapter. It's all got to be in this one. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, kids, don't try that at home. If you put yourself into a rigid structure, you then have to keep it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sometimes you can break those things for effect, like... This is a little bit different, but I tried with the memoirs to keep the chapter lengths roughly the same. And then in the fifth book, I have one chapter that is like a quarter the length of all of the others. And I did that on purpose for effect. And it works. Uh, my, my editor was like, oh, this felt like I got you know punched in the face. <laughs> Good. Um, but it just does mean that if you break your pattern, you have to be doing it for a very clear reason and not just because, oops, I made a mess. My characters did not go where I wanted them to. How dare. Which happens sometimes. I, I can't think of any real instances in this book, but actually for many of my novels, like the bits that I'm the most proud of are the ones where I'm like, I was going to do something different there. And then the character said, no. I'm going over here. <laughs> but yeah. no. Oh, well. I mean, it means my subconscious has like, put things together in a way that my conscious mind wasn't doing. And so those ideas, when they happen, are pretty much always stronger than what I was going to do. All right. This story talks has a lot of discussion bet about the boundaries between different social mm -hmm. classes. Um, what is your vision or how do you see the class structure in Rokugan work? So it's, it's an interesting setup because, um, you know, we don't get to see a lot of it, frankly, in most of the game fictions and even in the RPG, because the focus is heavily on samurai. And so you're going to be getting uh, samurai are the ones who are the main characters of the story, and samurai are mostly interacting with other samurai. And when peasants appear, it's they're in a walk-on role, they do something brief, which might be an important thing, but they're not, like, featured in the story. Uh, but with this one, um, literally for almost the entire book, Ryotora and Seken are literally the only samurai there. And they are surrounded by a village full of peasants. Uh, so it gave me an opportunity to explore that a lot more. And I definitely wanted to stay away from the thing that, again, you get this in the, the earlier editions of L5R, that kind of in that like 90s edgelord sort of way played up the, oh, and you know, if a peasant mouths off to a samurai or just doesn't even like get out of the road fast enough, the samurai will cut him in half. Like, I, I don't want to write that. Um, <clears throat> I, I especially don't want to write that in a story that's about the samurai. Like, I might write that if I was writing a story with peasant protagonists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because then it's about how they feel about it and what they do about it, but not when the samurai are the focus. Uh, but I did want to explore a little bit some of the tensions there. Um, you know, with the dragon, it's come out in the RPG fictions or in, in the game fictions. 
that uh, because the dragon have this problem of their birth rate is declining, uh, number one, they just, they straight up don't have enough children. And it's happening sometimes that samurai families who don't have a kid, like there are Agasha Chugenja who will travel around and like, basically, or not just Chugenja actually, because I don't think it's done with an invocation, but uh, they will test peasant children for spiritual merit. And if they have enough merit, then the kid gets taken off to be adopted and raised as a samurai. Um, which is something where that kind of thing wasn't out of the question in historical Japan, because the class boundaries were a lot more permeable in Japan than they tend to be represented as in L5R. But it means that for the dragon, there's kind of this weird thing going on there where they're like, yeah, we, we do this thing and we really hope nobody notices. <laughs> and so it means that Yotora, like he doesn't see the peasants as his equals exactly, but there is a very distinct sense of they are people to him, you know, that, that he, he cares about them as people rather than being half people, the, the Hamin uh, term. And second, it's not that, like, he doesn't see peasants as people. It's more that he kind of doesn't see them. Like, I wanted to have somebody who wasn't all, yay, peasants, I'm great with them. And so second's just, he is so much a fish out of water in that village. Uh, you know, he's a scholar, he's a courtier, he's used to being in cities and libraries. And now he's in this mining village surrounded by illiterate people. <laughs> and he just, he doesn't know how to fit in or deal with any of that. <laughs> uh, so I, I enjoyed playing with that a little bit so that it wouldn't just be all, like, I, I remember seeing this in the fourth edition uh, RPG books, where I swear every clan's write-up, like, went out of its way to say how this clan, unlike those other clans, wasn't a bunch of dicks to their peasants. Oh, yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you see that in the fandom too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I understand it because, frankly, I, I support the fact that lots of players don't want to play that guy who's going to cut the peasant in half for not bowing fast enough. Like, that's not a behavior that I would want to play at for fun. Um, I don't see any enjoyment in that. Uh, but I did want to show that class differences are still a real thing. And so there's a moment where Ryotora goes off on second because... Second appears to just, like, not even know the names of most of the peasants around him. Toto <laughs> is like, they have names. And I know you're not too stupid to remember them because you're actually really smart. It's just because you don't even think of it. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that I tried to play. So that's kind of how you see it working all over the place. The way, the way Second views peasants is kind of what you see as base normal like samurai for Rokugan you think? Let me put it this way um, there's without trying to drag this too far into real world stuff if you look at the problems with racism in the real world seconds on the kind of like well intentioned but clueless end of things uh, and there absolutely would be people who have much stronger prejudices and much more of the well you know the peasants just fundamentally don't matter as much as the samurai uh, same as we have with other kinds of prejudice in the real world. And historically, in European history, uh, there's an awful lot of like, yeah, the, the, the kind of the, the thing you keep hearing is that uh, my clan, in, in the kind of L5R and my clan is the smart one that's worked out that we need the peasants to grow our food. Right. Historically, <laughs> no one did that. And yeah, yeah. Historically, it was always like, well, there will always be more peasants who can do that for us. Or the ones that we still have can just work harder because, you know, they're inherently lazy, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it, it's absolutely the kind of thing where when you're looking at it in a game or in a fictional context, you can say, 
well, clearly, if you just did X, Y, Z, everybody would prosper more. And yet, strangely, when it comes to applying that in the real world, nobody ever seems to do it. Or rarely. Sadly. But yeah, it's very yeah, true. Yeah. So do you see that, do you think that Rokugan's class structure is different from historical Japanese? I do, I do. Um, and this is something that I, I've seen debated a lot among players. Um, I, I know I've said before, one of the things I love about this fandom is the extent to which not everybody involved in it, but a much higher percentage than the average populace, people are like, let me trot out my arguments about Edo period caste structure or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, it's a remarkably well-informed group overall. Um, and yeah, it's definitely taking uh, its model from a particular period in Japanese history. And so, first of all, what it's modeling wasn't true at all periods. Uh, and, you know, Rokugan definitely combines things from the Heian period, the Sengoku period, the Edo period. Uh, and then also, it gets treated, I think, as more rigid than such things usually are in real life. Like, there's more slippage, there's more weird edge cases and such in real history. Things like the whole, um, like, okay, adopting <clears throat> this peasant as your son and heir, or something like that. Uh, or things like, all right, well, this person did really well, and so they're basically going to be raised up in their class as a reward for their service. You know, that being done with Toku for the Monkey Clan in the old lore, that was kind of a huge deal, right? It was, oh my god, you know, the this hasn't... Line, yeah. Exactly. Um, and that kind of thing wasn't nearly as rare in history as we depicted as being in the fictional setting. And, you know, there's ways in which a game is not the best place for getting into all of the nuance and the exceptions and the edge cases and so forth, because you want to be able to give players, here's how things work, and you only have to learn it once. Uh, and it's the same thing that you see with, like, the clans and so forth, that you don't have the clans, like, getting obliterated, and then a new clan comes and takes their place in the way that you would get in real history. But I, I like having some of that slippage, which is why the whole thing with the dragon of, like, just going to kind of adopt some peasants on the DL uh, makes for an interesting plot, right? Because that kind of thing brings in that complexity. I also liked that even even if we're not talking about the difference between samurai and, and non-samurai, commoners, I actually really liked the the tension between the two protagonists because you've got our, our dragon who's from a vassal family and he's someone who's a straight-up agasha Sorry, not a gash. I do, do apologize. He's Asako. Straight up Asako. Yeah, there's, he's, he's dealing with someone who's a straight up Asako. Yeah, like an actual main mainline family, capital F family. It's like, <gasps> yeah. I, I like Yeah, that. and I've, I've actually, in the, the short fictions that I write, practically any place I get the opportunity, I jam in some like vassal uh, family member somewhere in the corner. And it's because when I ran my own campaign, I really played out the vassal families a lot. Uh, in order to give, like, to, to make the main families not as much of a monolith, and to make more of those rank distinctions between samurai. Um, actually, the, the way that I did it in my game was I made a one-point advantage. If you wanted to be a member of the main family rather than a vassal, then you had to buy that advantage. And it didn't, you know, give you a huge benefit, but it was just, you were, you know, a little bit above somebody who was at the same rank as you, but was from a vassal family. Uh, and yeah, I wanted to play with that so that uh, you have on the one side, second is like higher ranking, wealthier, more influential family, but he's also in Dragonland, so Ryotoda, you know, his word should go, but he's got kind of an inferiority complex around this. 
Uh, it, it allowed me to create a bit more character tension there and to show that, yeah, there are gradations within the samurai class. It's not that they're all basically equal with each other unless one of them explicitly has authority over the other. Makes total sense to me. So I got to ask this just because they're hilarious and I've got a good friend who adores otters. So otters, tell us about otters. <laughs> so I, I do have at one point in the book a kawauso, which is the uh, the word for otter and also for the otter yokai, uh, like the, the shape changer. Um, and it was because when I got to that point in the story, I thought, okay, I need some kind of shape changer to show up here. So let me go look through my options. And in that campaign that I ran, my, my sister still hasn't forgiven me for this. And I'm like, look, I managed to make a joke in a foreign language. Aren't you proud of me? Uh, one of the characters had a, a dream about something that had happened in like a previous life of theirs. And then later on, we did a flashback session where they all kind of like saw what had happened in that previous life. Um, uh, and it was actually, it had to do with the, the Black Pearl from the Naga. Like they had found it and then it got like stolen from them and it caused all kinds of problems later. Like they had to deal with the Chihismail. Um, but the character woke up from the dream, and what he said was, the river lied. And kawa uso, this isn't like, that's the word for otter, but kawa is river, and uso is lie. <laughs> and so I made this pun on the river lied with the word for otter, and when my sister, who's much more fluent in Japanese than I am, found that out, she was just, she still gives me the stink eye to this day, years later, and I'm like, but look, I did a funny... <laughs> I was proud of that one. <laughs> Sounds good. So moving on desperately um, before sister emails us <laughs> angrily. Um, do you, can you see yourself writing some more about these two these two individuals? I, I can, yeah. I, I don't know yet officially whether that will happen, uh, but I do have an idea for a sequel, and Aconite has shown interest in working with me again, so I'm hoping that will uh, wind up going through, but I don't know for sure yet if it will. Um, yeah, I, uh, when they, they first asked me, like, early on before I'd even, um, uh, written the first book, there was sort of a question of, oh, and if it should become a thing, would you be willing to do, like, more books of these characters? And it took all of about 15 seconds for my brain to say, well, there's also this thing in Japanese folklore called the Game of a Hundred Candles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly, I've got to use that as the title for the second book and do something with that. That would be neat. Yeah, if I get a chance to do that, for people who don't know, the Game of a Hundred Candles is this, like, uh, party game where you light a hundred candles or lanterns in one room of the house, and then you go sit in another room. Oh, and you also put a mirror in there with those uh, those candles. And you go into another room, and people tell stories, and specifically kaidan, which are these, like, uh, spooky, supernatural kind of stories. And after you tell your kaidan, you get up, you go to the other room, you blow out one of the candles, and you look in the mirror. And as this goes along and the room gets dimmer and dimmer, it starts to, like, kind of thin the veil to the world of supernatural things. And so it gets, like, scarier and more like, well, what if something jumps out at you? Uh, it, it's very much a, a scary stories to tell in the dark kind of thing. But, you know, clearly there's opportunity to do something with that in Rokugan. Though, <laughs> there's a part of me that goes, okay, so imagine that you do that. And then Aconite says, great, we would love you to do a third book. <gasps> I'm out of things that involve the word hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. Uh, tell you what, given that Rock Again's slightly bigger than Japan, right? Mm -hmm. I reckon that there's going to be the big highways. So instead of the 53 stations on the Tokaido Road, 
Ah. There you go. Okay, well, the other thing I did find when I was, um, because it wasn't originally set that this was going to be a Dragon Phoenix story. My my pitch to, uh, your, not even my pitch, but like what I said to Lottie was, I know you're planning some of the other novels. Um, like, tell me what hasn't been or what isn't being done in these other novels, and I'll set my story there. Uh, so I was told, like, yeah, don't do Crane, because we've got this, like, kind of foppish Crane detective kind of dude going on. Um, Crossover. <laughs> And so I was looking through the Atlas of Rokugan, I think it was that book, uh, you know, kind of looking for interesting places to set the story before I wound up inventing my own village. And I want to say it's Brittle Flower City, I might be misremembering, it has the Bazaar of a Hundred Fortunes. Ooh. And now that's something that, to my knowledge, is not, like, drawn from anything in the real world lore, but I, I might have to use that one if I wind up doing a third book. Uh, you know, this is very far in the future, and I have bigger things to worry about right now, but... <laughs> As soon as you lock yourself into a structure, this is like the chapter thing. <laughs> if you name two books, the noun of a hundred nouns, then everything's got to be the noun of a hundred nouns. <laughs> I should have learned my lesson with the, the Onyx Court series because the books of that are Midnight Never Come, In Ashes Lie, A Star Shall Fall, and then the fourth one wound up being With Fate Conspire. But all of those, I'm like, okay, three or four words ending in a verb where that line is drawn from a quote from some literature of the time period, which can serve as the epigraph to the final section of the book. Oh, great. Now i got to find a fourth one of those. <laughs> it took me forever, and I thought I'd learned my lesson, but apparently not. <laughs> I have to say, I really, really want, I really, really hope one or more of these books that are coming out from Aconite do form long, successful series. So I think that would just be so good for L5 as a whole. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fun to be able to develop stuff in more depth. I mean, like one of the things that I would want to do with a sequel is, okay, so the first book involves Seken going to a rural mining village in Dragonlands and being the fish out of water. And so clearly the second book would need to send Yotora to Seken's home. And now he's like at court in Phoenix Lands and he's the one going, oh God, I don't know what to do. Well, I mean, exactly. If you do, if you do the hundred candles, and it's a big highfalutin party full of, you know, full on people who outrank Diotona by like leaps and bounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why don't you give us a story, dragon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and you got, you know, somebody at that party would be like, "Why don't you tell us the story of that thing that happened with the night parade?" He's like, "No." We are not risking that. Oh, don't talk about that one. No, 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 no. That is a bad idea. What about uh, other future work are you looking forward to? Not, maybe not associated with this. What do you uh, So I, I mentioned at the beginning, The Mask of Mirrors is coming out just two weeks before Night Parade, uh, but that's under the name M.A. Carrick because I'm co-writing that with my friend Alice Helms. Uh, and this is an epic fantasy trilogy that is full of, like, capers and intrigue and street gangs and nobility and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mentioned before I hate doing the elevator pitch, so for this one I usually just fall back on uh, quoting The Princess Bride in that it has fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escape, true love, and miracles. <laughs> and actually, if you, if you know the musical uh, The Scarlet Pimpernel, there's a song called The Riddle that I'm like, just go listen to that song. There you go. That's, that's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a lot of identity hijinks and uh, you know characters sneaking around under different personas trying to remember what they've said to whom under which persona and we had to make a color-coded chart at one point to keep track of that 
Uh, so yeah, it, it's uh, it's actually something that I'm incredibly proud of because working with Alyss, um, it's definitely the kind of thing where both of us were pushing the other to do like more and do better than we had done before. Uh, so I think what we produced is is very rich and intricate. Like even our editor commented, we're working on edits for the second book right now. She was like, yeah, with other books you can go like, yeah, to tighten up the pacing, I think you should just remove this scene. But with this one, like if you pull out a scene, then there's like eight other things that you then have to adjust because all of the threads you just yanked on. <laughs> nice. So it is complex. Uh, but that comes out January 19th. Cool. Uh, and finally, where can people find you on the internet? And do you have anything else you want to plug? Um, you can find me at swantower.com or swan underscore tower on Twitter. Uh, I've got a Patreon called New Worlds that is all about world building for fantasy and science fiction. Uh, so you can find that as well. And then the M.A. Carrick stuff, that's macarrick.com, C-A-R-R-I-C-K. Uh, and we are M.A. underscore Carrick on Twitter. Because uh, this is what happens when the word you want is already taken by somebody else. Uh, and we've actually got a nifty thing that just went up on our website recently. There's a um, divinatory deck of cards in a setting called the Pattern Deck uh, that's not just tarot with a different name. It's a, a different system that we invented. And we got somebody to create a widget for the website so you can go like do a pattern reading for yourself on our website, which we're really proud of. Nice. <laughs> that sounds fun. Well... That's all the questions we had, unless you had something else you just were dying to tell us. <laughs> uh, everything I can think of would be spoiler kind of thing of like, let me tell you all about the clever things I'm proud of that you shouldn't know until you read the book. Yeah. Never mind. Go read the book. It's got, I mean, seriously, <laughs> wow. it, is, it is a fantastic read. Uh, I, read I read it in literally one sitting which is not something I tend to do very often these days <laughs> for various reasons. And it was, just, it was just fantastic and great fun, and the characters are amazing. Thank you. Yeah, we yeah. enjoyed it very much too. So, but but it, now we got to go and buy them in paper. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to having the actual physical copy in my hands because uh, you know the pandemic and everything means that they only did digital advanced copies. And normally, I, I get my physical advanced mm-hmm. copy and can you know do a little bit of a golem my precious over it yes. before I get the finished book. Now I got to wait for the finished <laughs> one. Like, where is it? <laughs> it's not a real book until I can hold it in my hands. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We always love having you. And I suspect that there may be opportunities to come, you know, invite you by in the future. I certainly hope so. It's a lot of fun doing this. Um, <laughs> good. I'm glad. Um, however, I think that that's about it for us this week. So we're going to call out to our Court Games Network, which includes this podcast for the RPG and the L5R LCG podcast. We have a live from Tokyo podcast called Tokyo of the Five Rings and two actual play role-playing podcasts, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortune and Strife. And we also have our friends at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the community's called Patreon, which supports our editing costs as well as our website, where you can find long-term information such as summaries of podcasts, great RPG tools, and much more. For our patrons, we have special bonus content, including adventure seeds and early access to our AP podcast. You can find us online at courtgamespod.com. On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And our Patreon is at patreon.com slash courtgames. But uh, that's it for us this week. Thank you once again, Marie. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I've been Korva. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy.
Radio, your gamers' role.